Welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. Like Apple computers, they have a total valuation of over $2 trillion. This week we'll be talking about a recent news story that has frankly dominated the headlines, the discovery of a 1,200-year-old industrial soap factory in the Bedouin city of Rahat in southern Israel. While some of the details of this early Islamic period installation are still unclear, it raises intriguing questions like, how do we know it was really a soap factory? Why are the local residents so proud of the discovery? And what do we really know about soap anyway? Let's go straight to the lightning round. Contestants, what kind of soap do you use? I, I use Dr. Bronner's. I use the fourth generation Jewish German soap maker with the extraordinarily dense verbiage on the container. It's too small for me to read, generally. Is it that is. organic of some sort? Of course. Of course, of course it's organic it's organic and it's made not from olive oil but from a very secret recipe why is it that soap manufacturers keep everything a secret that was an interesting question yeah, that's a good question and is it related is it related to like perfumery and the whole idea of of scents and because uh, that can be very proprietorial or is it just is it just commerce is it just the secretness of guilds throughout the Throughout the late antique period and the and the and the Middle Ages and the early modern, apparently in the modern period of, or the early modern period, soap makers were very secretive about their processes as well. How long do you do you let the soap boil or dry, or and what kinds of additives you use? How much saltpeter or? But let's step back for a minute. Okay. All of these all of these traditional soap makers, they're using what five ingredients? I would think that's that. and it's, it's not like picking up a, a bottle of, of Dove now where you see five million polysyllabic words. It's like five ingredients. And we've already learned like three of them from, <laughs> from, from this recent publications of soap production. It's some kind of fat. It's potash. And it's, you know, saltpeter. I don't know, a couple of other things. Yeah. So all of this secretness... You don't think they all knew <laughs> how to put in to make a bar of soap? Come on. I would, th I would think you could probably smell your competitor's product and <laughs> figure it out. Oh, they're that using you know, totally a your competitor. But the thing is, I think like, like today, um, you're not going to make this on your own, right? Because you don't have time, you don't have the facilities, so you have to buy it. So there are going to be different brands out there. So even if it's, I mean, today, I don't know when it would have become secret, but if you're going to be making it and competing with somebody, um, you're not going to let on what you're doing. Right. But in the town, okay, so this soap manufacturing was discovered in some town 
not city. Right. Even, even the great Byzantine cities of the Negev, Avdat, these are not cities. Right. These are very small municipalities <laughs> under the thumb of some titular leader who, you know, had everyone by the throat because they're stuck in the middle of the Negev. Right. So, so how much, I mean, whatever the competition was, you were buying it from your relative or a friend of your relatives. That's right. who soap you were. I don't think, I don't think the, I mean, I think if you were living in, in Constantinople, then maybe with huge marketplaces and a huge population and lots of comings and goings and people and innovations and, you know, oh, look, the Doge's soap. I, ha I, must, have, I must have a crate of the Doge's soap. Right. Then I think marketing came into it. But in, but in Proto-Rahat, yeah. I, I got to believe you were either buying it from your relative because you were friends with, because you were still collegial with them, or you were buying from the other family because you wouldn't talk to your relatives anymore. Okay, you raise a very good set of points here. And, uh, <laughs> but it's the first time. The, um, so, so then, is this the only soap production in the immediate vicinity? Is this like a monopoly for this part of the Negev? Um, in which case, this analogy from 19th century or whatever that, um, that, that there are secret formulas really doesn't apply, even though we've been reading about that in the article. What's the evidence that they're actually using the soap? Uh, are there drains with, you know, soap rings around them that have been excavated as well? In the 19th century, most of the soap was exported to Egypt. And there were nine or 10 soap factories in Jerusalem in the mid 1870s alone. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's okay, but there was only this one soap factory in Rahat in the, what, 7th century, 8th century? Yeah. So how do we know that they're even using it? It's all for export. Right. Or maybe okay. they were using it as a building material. It's nice. It's rectangular. <laughs> you can stack the stones very stack smoothly. Them. Right. You just put a little water on them and they adhere to each other. They could have been the original, you know, Lego. Right. Okay. So I have a technical question. Um, so we have the olive oil as the base. And then we have the ashes from the saltwort plants, um, right. which I looked up. And apparently the ashes from the saltwort plants yield soda ash. And then you throw a touch of lavender in there, or maybe a little mint. Basil. Did they have lavender? Sure, yeah. Lavender, don't you? The, I think the earliest state of lavender is found from Ovalo in 20,000 BP. Okay. And I've actually just completely made that up. Okay, well, that sounded yeah, really good. Do they have lavender in the negative in the 8th century? I'm sure they had something that smelled, you know, reasonable. That smelled nice. Okay, because lavender is very relaxing. It's very good for anxiety and things like that. Supposedly. Well, if you were living in the Negev in the, in the 7th, 8th century, you would have a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, it's hot. thinking about it. But lavender to me is always very cloying. I don't like the smell of lavender. I feel, I feel it's a very, like, old, old matriarchs from New York City slather themselves in lavender and they're and it's just I feel cloying like in a Isn't that part of potpourri? Yeah. I know I get that. I get that because um until recently I really didn't like lavender, but then yeah. I found a new lavender rub that actually smells really quite nice. So maybe it depends on what it's mixed with. Maybe it also is the age. Maybe now we're becoming the age of people that's, who like lavender. That's maybe interesting. Lavender is one of those one of those things that until you're 50, you don't really appreciate 
<laughs> decreasing, you know, aspect of lavender. I but, think that's that's it. You know, this After is going to be a I'm sorry. After you're 60, you can't get enough lavender. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you can't possibly get enough. So you're, right. you're just going to be importing it by the ton. Right. So you, so if you're a soap manufacturer, you have to know your, you have to know your, your market. Right. And clearly everybody in Rahat in the seventh century, they're all dying before the age of 50 plus right. or minus. Right. No one's, right. No one's living at a great length in this harsh, because all we hear, it's a harsh environment. It's tough. Although it would be really interesting. We need more information. It'd be really interesting to know if people in and around the vicinity of Rahat were living slightly longer than people in other places because of the soap, because yeah, they have better really, sanitation no, that's, and hygiene. That's purely the Dannon yogurt commercial from the 1970s, where they would go into, into Georgia and Armenia and find 90-year-olds and attribute it to the, <laughs> to the propitious health-producing properties of, of yogurt. That's all your, that's what that is. Well, I don't know. I buy that. I don't think it was the yogurt. I think it was the fact that these people were isolated from everybody else. They couldn't get their jerk. They couldn't get anything from anybody else. They were social distancing and keeping people in quarantine. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the strategy. I don't think the yogurt had anything to do with it. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not talking about yogurt. I'm talking about <laughs> washing your hands with soap. But as we know from, from, from Gilat, yeah. we know that these secondary dairy products from, you know, herds are part of the, the Negev, you know, subsistence base. So I think that along with the soap, we can actually posit that they were eating yogurt. Okay, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have your curds, you have your whey, you have your cottage cheese, cream cheese. Two yeah, percent. We have all those. We have all those ethnographic results of Bedouin women with the with the with the goat skin shaking it and shaking it. Right. And that's how we know that those calcolithic churns are churns that are used for making yogurt. Yeah, I think they're making. I think they're making fermented milk and not yogurt. That, which is really, you know, six of one, half dozen of the I other. I was going to say, except, right, except the fermentation, I mean, fermented milk, you know, takes the edge off. Yo yogurt, I don't think yogurt takes the edge off. But, you know, I spent a little time in Mongolia. And in Mongolia, they, they literally, in every yurt, which is a imperial colonial word that they don't use in Mongolia. Oh, good to know. They use the word gare. Every gare has a big plastic garbage that uh, garbage container you know a plastic trash bin and in that trash bin they just keep it filled with fermented mare's milk and they drink like 40 liters of mare's milk a day and part of that i think is just to cognitively deal with living in the steppe which is devoid of any geographic geographic feature hmm. and is completely if there ever was a landscape that bespeaks infinity it's the steppes of of central asia and i think the only way to deal with that is by having a buzz a constant little buzz and that's what the fermented mare's milk did i would think you'd want the same thing in in maha in the seventh in the seventh eighth centuries you want a little buzz so maybe you're right now. Yeah, I, I think you probably want it all the time. 
um, if you're living in that kind of that kind of environment. It's hot, then it gets cold, hot again. It's very yeah. repetitive. Yeah. But uh, but what's interesting to me also is is the pride that people that you know the the the, the people of Rahat seem to to take in in the production or the discovery of this soap factory and the idea that their their deep ancestors were olive oil making soap using folks and and that's i mean which is terrific because hygiene is obviously something we we applaud <laughs> and we're severely lacking these days right we don't really practice it we don't really practice it enough um and you know these these kinds of relative comparisons of you know well our, our ancestors were particularly hygiene uh, hygiene <laughs> Yeah, I think that's 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 a very interesting thing to take pride in. I mean, I'm I'm all for it. I hope that my ancestors were super hygienic. But don't you think that if they oh, had yeah. if they had found you know some kind of tanning facility, they would take pride in that also? I think they Probably. would. I think communities take pride in whatever they find. Absolutely. So I think I mean it's nice that they found a soap production facility. But, you know, there seems to be a little bit of pride in these game boards that they found. The game boards are <laughs> interesting. Even a little surprise. Like, oh, they're playing games. Yeah. This, this is what always strikes me, is that in archaeology, the canvas of any society that we are excavating is always blank until we start filling it up with things. It never starts crowded. Like, we never assume they're playing lots of games. Like, in the 7th century Rahat, that there exists hundreds of games, and we just happen to stumble upon two. It's more like, oh, they play games, right. as if it's a blank canvas. Right, right. cognitively well, we people... like us. Right. We never think of people in the negative having enough leisure time in the pre-modern era to play games. On the other hand, after the sun goes down, what are you gonna do with yourself? Right. Yeah. So, why not? Gotta fill that time up. And I like that these are ancient games from the region that clearly have lasted. Um, well, they're made of stone. They're going to last. <laughs> okay. <laughs> very, very durable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the the surprise is is very is very surprising. Right. Archaeologists are nothing if not continually surprised. Continually surprised. We're continually surprised every time we find something. We are just so shocked and surprised that this, this is going on in the ancient world. Instead of saying, oh, well, we finally have evidence that this is going on. Of course it was going on. They ate meat? <laughs> right. Incredible. Oh, they made bread. They made, they made yogurt. <laughs> they made yogurt. Right. Um, I, have, I have a question which we probably can't um, answer until maybe the final excavation report is, is published. So the oh silk factory... Do we all have to follow up on this? Do we all have to get back? Updates on the raw hot. Well, yeah. Olive oil soap production facility. Season season twelve episode. <laughs> one. Um, it was found in a large pillared structure that probably belonged to a wealthy family. We've been told so far. So. Right. Is this, is this an accurate description or when everything is hashed out and, and the final report comes out, will we find out this is simply a large structure that was used as a factory? Like why would a wealthy family 
be manufacturing soap? And was this also where the wealthy family lived or was this not? And I want to know more about, now we know a lot about how the soap was manufactured based on Nablus industry recently. You know, you <coughs> burn the, the salt wort, you get the ashes, you cook it up with the olive oil, you um, put it in a shallow pool and you let it harden and you cut it into bars and all this stuff. But I want to know what the architecture of the building actually looks like and if it reflects any of this process. So I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, well, this is another thing archaeologists always do. Whenever we find a big building, we always assume that it's, it's a reflection of wealth. Right. And it, it may be, but right, until we have a whole comparative set of, of, of architectural, you know, of other buildings, we, we don't really right. know. Right, and I, I, I guess I'm bothered by not, the not knowing because for me, it should be one or the other. It's either an elite <laughs> structure or it's a factory. It's so Manichaean of you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very Manichaean. That's true. It is Manichaean. Or is that Manichaean? <laughs> oh, I've heard it both ways. For all you psych fans out there. Okay. But um, yeah, I mean, in archaeology, we never know anything. This is the whole, this is, I think this is one of the features of archaeology. You can't go into archaeology if you, if you need to know the entire database. That's been only, my problem all along. <laughs> you can only know small little bits and you have to be, I, I think see where this is going. with making up 80% of the story. Right. But are, are they, are we? Yes. The, what, comfortable making it up? <laughs> I mean, that's what we do. Of course we make it all up. But we then we can refine it. And that's the beauty of archaeology, that we can change our minds and publish something um, 180 degrees different than what we published five years previously. And because yes. we found something new or we've rethought it, because yes. we're really very, we're, we're very open-minded people. We're shameless. <laughs> we're shameless that way. <laughs> we're shameless that way. Plus, we, don't ha we usually don't have the capacity to remember what we wrote five years <laughs> ago. So but there's, also, there's also a cottage industry of of attacking each other of course this isn't a soap factory what are you insane it's a it's a candy factory <laughs> yeah. we have this looks exactly oh, like the neko wafer factory in boston and you know that brings up an interesting question um was this soap safe to eat <laughs> Well, not necessarily on purpose, but could, you know, was it safe for children to use the stuff? It could go into their mouths. Because it, it contains olive oil, that's edible. Um, I don't think anything terrible will happen to you if you eat the ashes of saltwort plants. No. Ashes are, you know, probably there's some kind of beneficial, you know, cleansing of your, of your kishkas. You can right. go on Amazon today and pay good money to buy ashes. Like <laughs> you, want, you want ashes? I can get you ashes. <laughs> Well, maybe it's not soap then, or maybe it's a, a dual use technology. You can use it for soap. You can use it as famine food. You could throw a little bit on your frying pan and, and have your, uh, have your. That's right. Can you cook with, can you cook with this kind of soap? That's interesting, actually. Um, and it's how large is it? to do with Lifebuoy or <laughs> Zest. Right. Actually, I'm the only one who said what kind of soap I use. So can we. Uh -huh. Can yeah, I, I prefer Dove because it's got lots of oil in it and it doesn't dry out my skin. Okay. And I particularly use liquid or bar? Bar, and I only really like the cocoa butter flavored Dove. Um, <laughs> which, 
I don't very eat high it. cholesterol, but but it smells really good. Right. Um, and before Alex gives his, um, I, I need to just ask the question: How large were the bars that they were cutting their soap into? <laughs> the size of frisbees. <laughs> yeah, it's probably probably the size of uh, the size of of ancient, you know, of of medieval's um, sugar loaves, which were, you know, were they big? I well, yeah. the picture. They're and huge. They were, and then they were recut. And then they were recut. Uh huh. Uh -huh. They might have even been remelted. I don't know. For ease in transport. Yeah, because you're not going to be stacking 600 little bars, and then all of which are going to melt together anyway when you're transporting. Well, those are big medieval sugar loaves. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, what kind of soap do you use? Zest. I'm zestfully clean. I was a, you know, I was a, a an Irish Spring lad for a while. <laughs> But the smell is so powerful that um, I would it would actually wake me up at night. <laughs> myself. Wow. Yeah. So I, I switched. And I find that zest is a good balance of blue, whatever that is, and, you know, cleanliness. The, the soap that I always was fascinated in is, you know, I think we all grew up with ivory. Right. <clears throat> which is... I'm sure it's a fine product and we would love to have them as a sponsor, but it has uniquely <laughs> desiccating um, qualities for the human, human skin. Maybe a little too much potash. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was always fascinated with lava. Remember well, I want to get back to Irish Spring for a minute. <laughs> Do you think that Irish Spring is, comes out of the Catholic community in Ireland or the Protestant community? Oh. We, in high school, <clears throat> we had a little comedy group, <laughs> and, 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 we, and we looked at Irish Spring, and we did a whole little riff on, on the guy cutting, if you remember in the commercial. Oh, oh yeah, he cuts knife, knife, yes. And he cuts it, and he, there's something, like there's a green core or something. Yeah. And we always, we, we always thought, oh, that must have been you know, an, a Catholic or a Protestant, and the person interviewing him was of the other religion. And <laughs> that's and how the trouble's going to start. About cutting up bars of soap. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, 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 you're dissing my people's oh. you know, unique product. I'm just wondering if it comes out of the Catholic or the Protestant community because, and here I will get back to the discovery of this soap manufacturing. Oh, my goodness. We, we, have a, uh, we have a religious uh, connection with, with this production tradition, according to this article, that this shows the Islamic roots of the community. But Alex, Rachel, are there other explanations for why they're using olive oil in the middle of a desert to make well, soap? Before we answer, I think we need to <laughs> explain to our audience that this is associated with the Islamic beginnings because it is made with olive oil as opposed to the fat of an animal, um, especially well, as opposed to the fat of a particular animal. Particular, particular animal. Um, Namely particular a pig. animal that, as far as I know, doesn't really, is not a desert dwelling animal. Not, not right. habitually. <laughs> 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 Perhaps some found themselves there, <laughs> some, uh, an unlucky few. 
Well, I, think, I think that that's the answer, really, that you, that you make soap out of what you have on hand. And that if you're, if you're living in the Southern Levant and there's olives just literally growing on trees, <laughs> then, that's what you, then that's what you use. And it's not that hard to transport um, olive oil all raw olives in, in any sort we know that they went every which way right and, and it's and that they and that they're they they can un undertake a long journey yeah they, they, I think the last thing you'd want to do is is load up a caravan with lard <laughs> because i'm i'm pretty sure every carnivorous animal in the wild would descend on your caravan and and just tear you apart that's probably that's a, that's true. A good point. Yeah. Um, Large transportation. <laughs> yeah. what, what is the effective radius <laughs> before right. you yourself you know, die? Right. So I think that this ascription of of uh, a specific, you know, ethno-religious community, I think I think we're putting the you know the the cart before the horse. That could be. Now maybe one of you knows though because I don't know how much, you know, there's plenty of excavations from this period and from other periods in the Negev, and you do find pig bones sometimes, but are they a small percentage or are they a more significant percentage? I don't know. I, I don't know, but, but pigs don't dwell in the desert. Pigs that's, need moisture. Pigs need, pigs need, you know, a lot of rotting vegetables and a lot of moisture and look. a lot of... Right, right. But you do find, like in, in the Iron Age, you will find pig bones, not necessarily in the Negev, but you'll find them on the southern coastal plain. So, yeah, But that's filled with marshes and mires and all of these kinds of things. Okay, so the pigs aren't living this far east in, in the desert. Not happily. Okay. Really. <laughs> yeah, really. Right. Not comfortably. I, I, think if, I think if they were, they'd be protesting rather, rather vociferously. I think part of the whole pig, pig thing is, is that it has something to do with the way they sweat and they have to keep their skin moist. They have okay. to keep their skin wet or else they, or else they dry up into a, into a pork rind. Well, they better not use ivory soap then because they'd be even drier. That's true. Exactly. Well, and, that's why, and that's why you don't have pigs that are way, way, way up in, in the mountains anywhere. Right. They have to wallow. Pigs must wallow. They have to wallow. That's true. Well, pretty much like us. <laughs> exactly. And they say that, that pigs are very close to human beings. Right. Both in intelligence and in our, in our wallowing tradition. And this is why we all dissected fetal pigs in ninth grade. Didn't it both is. of you dissect fetal pigs? Uh, I believe we did. Okay. I believe we did. I, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I actually got out of that because ah. I, I had no capacity to deal with any aspect of biology that was not found in a dry, desiccated textbook. <laughs> so anytime there was any dissection going on, I would invoke lots of, lots of- uh, <laughs> Ethical uh, strictures. Exactly, right. But I couldn't participate in that. I think I- It's philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Good for you. I didn't get out of it, but I didn't learn very much from it either. It was all uh, mushy and squishy. But did you have pig embryos in the place that you went to school, which we're not going to mention? <laughs> Surprisingly, we did. 
And, really? Yeah, and at least in my day, no one objected based on any sort of, of ethical or other grounds. Um, really? There were people who were like really? grossed out, and, but they had to do it anyway. Um, but this I'm, was not an issue. I'm a little surprised. Yeah, yeah, it's it, reasonable to be surprised. Um, but well, yeah, but, right, you know, this was, this was years ago. Right, yeah, right, Things before everybody change. felt so self-aggrieved about everything. Right, exactly, exactly. So back to pigs in the desert. Right. I would not want to, I would not want to travel with one there. No. Or use one. I think they get very testy very quickly. <laughs> right. You'd have to have the air conditioning turned way up. Right. They'd be, they'd be wanting to stop every 10 minutes to wallow, and you'd have to <laughs> pour canteens of water over them. Which That's right. This Don't make that come back there and pour water and, and archaeological allies always want to ascribe some kind of, of, of social group to all of the artifacts that, right. that are found, and right. especially in the Middle East. Right. Right. Um, on the other hand, uh, the other question I have is, has the archaeology of Rahat or this area shown settlement prior to, say, the seventh century of the Common Era? Well, we know that there's lots of Byzantine occupation yeah. in the Negev. Okay. So, right, we should look there for what kind of, you know. Yeah. Sure. What type are they yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's soap factories that have not yet been discovered in Byzantine sites. Um, or identified as such. Exactly. Right. The identification. Right. right. Now, it could and, be that the Christians, maybe not in the Negev, but elsewhere, they're just making, making their, their pork roasts and having their morning bacon, pouring off the, 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 the liquid remains, and they're just, you know, keeping, keeping that and making soap out of it later on. Right. Um, Maybe they're just uh, sort of putting it in a cooler environment, letting it dry, adding some, you know, uh, aromatics, and just smearing that all over themselves and then scraping away. Right, right. Um, and yeah, exactly, the way the Romans did. Maybe they're just borrowing it from the, from the Romans. Right. They're, pour, they're pouring pig fat on themselves and scraping it off. Well, they're, they could be pouring olive oil on themselves and scraping it off without making it into soap. That's right. what I read I, right before about, about the Romans. Right. Where Greeks and the Romans would, uh, would pour olive oil and then they have strigils, you know, sort of. Oh, good word. I know. It's like, they're like little highlight. <laughs> okay. Okay. Scrape off. I, I've never done that. I'm intrigued. Well, we just had, you know, there's that gallon of olive oil now. Yeah, we just had a gallon of olive oil. Oh, yeah. Um, now that's an experimental archaeology thing. <laughs> just don't film it. Talk <laughs> <laughs> about wallowing. On behalf of the larger archaeological community, I would just ask that this be audio only. <laughs> right, right. I, I'm pouring the olive oil on my head now. <laughs> Well, I would be more comfortable with the Islamic Association of Early Rahat once we know again what the final excavation report oh, is. They have that. Like. They have that very early mosque there. The open right. House. There's the mosque. That's, and that's what I wanted to know. Right. The thing they didn't say about that is which way the mosque pointed. Exactly. To Jerusalem or, or to Mecca, which right. would be a clue as to exactly how early it is and any other finds, you know, coins or what have No, it's not such a clue because if you look at all of the synagogues, both ancient 
and modern, and they all purport to face Jerusalem, you'll quickly realize that they face Jerusalem in a very inconsistent way. Uh, they face Jerusalem, the Bema faces Jerusalem, the Bema faces away from Jerusalem, so the person at the Bema will face Jerusalem. Mm. So this is another one of these kinds of myths that, we, that we play fast and furiously with, but, um, you know, is not, is not so consistent. Right. Well, you're, you're busting an archaeological myth here about how confidently we can ascribe dates and, and even functions to different structures according to the way they point and how they're, how they're organized and things. Right. I mean, these synagogues faced all directions. And one would suspect that in very early Islam, that there was, a, there was probably a great, great deal of diversity in where one thought, what direction one, one should pray. Right, right. But and that this only became, you know, canonized and, and set in, in tradition and stone and practice over a period of time. I think that that's probably the case with most kinds of, you know, religious cultural practices. That right. there's diversity and then the diversity gets ironed out once you have some kind of administration, once you have some kind of, of official practice that is um, created in order to both unify and homogenize the practice because of, of the administrative political needs of the, of the elite. That was very well, eloquent. That was, a, that was a real conversation stopper. <laughs> yeah, that was that was good. Well, that brings me back to Irish Spring, yeah. and you know, and actually, this is completely relevant because, um, as as the internet tells us, <laughs> um, you know, we have this we have this um, conception that, I, and we've been sold this by uh, media, by the man, by by practice that Irish Spring. Um, Irish Spring was launched in Germany in 1970 and then in the U.S. in 1972. So right in the middle of the Troubles. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, up until 1990, Irish Spring soapars came in only one scent, known internally as Ulster Fragrance. There you go. Um, but the Colgate Company has since branched out into several niche varieties and scents. <laughs> Yes, yeah, because so, the Catholics are a huge market. They were missing their Catholic right, shares. Right. <laughs> um, but it it wasn't it wasn't from there. It wasn't aimed to there. It wasn't even about there. It was just a name that somebody, some you know, nineteen seventy era German Don Draper came up with, and then it got right. shipped over here. Right. Well, but why? Exotic. They called it the Ulster scent. The Ulster scent, that was the internal name for the smell. Right. So right there, the fact that, it was, that they called it the Ulster scent says something. It, wait, right. is, it a, um, is it a Irish company or is it an American company? Oh, it's Colgate Palm Olive. Oh, it is. Yeah. And, uh, hmm. but the fact that... So they're, they're just culturally appropriating <laughs> something. Well, I think they're just uh, trying, to, trying to foist a certain Irishness <laughs> on us. Um, okay. Well, I, I don't want to say foist. That's that's pejorative. Right. I think uh, it, it has and it has an association with something that is 
green and and leafy and lush right right and and those those you know nice irish folks in the early commercials with the knives that are cutting open bars of soap and confronting each other over this over the recipe and um and it smells so so fresh and this apparently meant really resonated with germans in 1970 um so i felt about dr bronner <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they were. Sure they were very enthusiastic about him too. But, well, uh, never, never made the move to buy out Dr. Bronner. Yeah, well, I'm sure that there, there's a whole interesting history of his. Uh, well, well, Terry Gross on Fresh Air interviewed his grandson, who is or great grandson, who is no, not grandson, great great grandson, I think, who took over the company and you know you know, revitalized it and, and, and made it the stalwart of, of, uh, of co-ops across America. <laughs> it's, so it's a kind of niche product. It, it, uh, it's, it, it, it's aimed at a certain demographic. It has a certain um, price point. It has, there's a certain pitch associated with it. It's all natural. It's made of herbs and spices, <laughs> you know, like, like the Colonel's recipe. And, or, like, or like this soap down in, in Rahat. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. So, so it's soap is a niche market. It's a niche market that everybody, that everybody hopefully. Well, that's the question. That was going to be my next question. Did everybody down there in the seventh century use this soap or not? Well, if it's a niche market and, and p- perhaps geared towards export, then that, then then whether they're using it locally maybe is beyond the, the main thrust. Maybe it's Thanks. just for export. Maybe, this, maybe it's soap as a, big, as a big cash crop. And that's okay. something that has been overlooked. Whenever we talk about you know, the big commercial interests of the, of, the, of the Levant, of the Eastern Mediterranean, it's always wine and olive oil. And, and now maybe we should be thinking soap. Maybe certainly, certainly in the 19th century, that was that was the main use for the main export use of olive oil. That it wasn't being exported as oil; it was being turned into soap and sent to Syria, sent to Egypt. And that's kind of interesting that in those places, well, Egypt aside, but in Syria, Lebanon, that they didn't have their own soap manufacturing. They certainly had the raw materials in right. in in huge amounts. So maybe there is something about this, this secret recipe right. that um, it, was, it was highly controlled. Uh, maybe you did need access to potash and other kinds of things like that that weren't available in Lebanon and Syria. Um, how much uh, saltwort grows up there? Well, that's, that's one of the big mysteries of antiquity. <laughs> how much saltwort does the Negev grow? Next time we're there, we're going to have to see if we can find some growing wild. Right, and then burn it. And right. then burn it. Right. But so, do you remember in, in East Jerusalem, and back in the day, you could go into a pharmacy, and there would always be a box with chunks of green olive oil soap, often from Nablus, I think. Right, it was and, one of the big centers. And it was, right, and it was, they, weren't, they were just chunks of it. Yeah, I kind of and remember. And they were all odd cut, as if, as I think, Alex, you're probably right, that they were made in large, big, you know, bars or chunks, and that they would just be, you know, broken up in an informal way later. 
And, and I always, re you know, that, that's, I remember that very well. They weren't packaged. There was no plastic around them or anything else. It was just chunks of olive oil soap. And it was very, very cheap because it was local. And right. it was something that was locally used. And of course, you know, something very unfamiliar to my eyes. And I would always gravitate towards whatever, you know, sort of Western bars of soap were available. So you never bought it and you never no, used it? I, I started buying it much later. Okay. You know, within the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, but certainly not when I was, right. I was younger. And then I, I, the same thing goes on in, um, in Antakya, in uh, Turkey, in the Hatay. In Antakya, there's also now these little, you know, um, these little hipster manufactories for soap and perfumes. And that's something that, you know, when I'm in Hatay, coming back, I'm always buying people bars of soap because, you know, right. it's, it's, become a, it's become a hipster exotic good. Exactly. Whereas before it was just a, your average commercial stuff that everybody used and that right. was available. Right. And, uh, and, you know, there were probably variations. Oh, you know, I don't want the, I'm not using the Monopolis soap. I'm using the, the Jerusalem soap. Right. But, uh, but now it has to be marketed in this, you know, global, global soap, you know. Uh, well, just in this elite product. way that these, that these homespun products that are, you know, all natural. And, the, and these, in this case, it is sort of all natural. Right. Can be marketed. Well, they can charge more for it and everything else. And maybe in, in you know, in late, in late antiquity, the early medieval period, the same thing went. Because it was an elite product, and it was all natural, and uh, there were probably urban markets that there was a clientele that understood that at some level, that they weren't that they weren't buying pig slop, that they were getting olive oil soap. Right, right, and, and it could be regional. Is why in Italy and Greece, which also grows copious amounts of olive trees, why aren't they making their own olive oil soap? And it's also a, it's also a way to distinguish yourself that. You know, I'm not pouring olive oil over my head and scraping it off with a stick like these, like these uh, barbarians. I'm using this delicate little bar. And right. Right. Well, Dead Sea, Dead Sea soap products today are a huge industry. This exactly. Is, you know, this is the, the, the region. But again, that would require going for the pot, potash. The potash. Uh, from farther away. And we should say to our listeners that if you do know the, the correct pronunciation, send us, send us a, a note. Making a big assumption, of course, that we have listeners. Right, well. Oh, yes. Well, we're gonna make we have listeners. <laughs> we're gonna, it's a leap of faith. Leap of faith. Shall we, um, shall we do some final thoughts? Uh, I'm sure. not ready to do that yet. No, no, I think we should. I don't know how long we've- I have no idea how long we've been doing this. There's a lot more than 10 minutes. I think we should, right, because I think we should err on the side of brevity. Right. The, well, we're already too late for that, but. Right. Yeah. Final thoughts. Soap is good. Soap is good. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Um, this might be a valuable region to produce soap in where you can market it and trade it. And people will be interested in this particular kind of soap. A fabulous, um, a fabulous topic for somebody's MA thesis or PhD thesis. <laughs> really fabulous, because you could do, you could go, you know, down to the molecular level, and 
and clearly that's the direction archaeology is going. That's right. Science uberalis, science above everything. And so we are going to the molecular level. So yes, that would be good. Yeah. You have to get small, as, <laughs> as the man once said, yeah. real small. Yeah. Well, and I think what we should do next is um, we should all cook something made with olive oil and then take showers with some soap. I was thinking of just taking a yeah. shower, but cooking, I just, I just did a little cooking. So I think I'm going to go right to the shower. Right to the shower. Okay. Okay. Um, you're going to use the olive oil? No, I'm going to use my Dr. Bronner's. <laughs> well, that's really quite enough, don't you think? Our theme music was composed by Erez Dessel. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Graysell Ferguson Airline and Storm Door Company, and you, the listener. To get in touch, click on the links or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.